Welcome to the Building the Elite podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. Before you can manage your self-talk, emotions, pain, or fatigue, you must manage your stress response. The process that controls our stress response occurs automatically and outside conscious control. We've all felt this before. Somebody says something in a specific way, or you notice body language that just seems off, and before you know it, you're in a rage or feel every muscle in your body tense. This built-in response, called neuroception, helps protect us by bypassing the brain's powerful but slow reasoning centers and immediately prepares us for action when we sense threats in our environment, including our own body. When it works well, we quickly respond to challenges and overcome them. However, when we have unchecked or overactive stress responses, performance quickly spirals. Even though many stress responses are automatic, we can learn to identify, manage, and shape them. And to do that, we first need a mental model of the physical and mental cues accompanying different types of stress responses. Different states require different responses. So the more accurately we can identify different states, the more skillfully we can regulate our responses, preventing ourselves from being hijacked by an unhelpful or destructive response. When you move into too strong of a stress response, you can lose the ability to think and react well, responding with a strong fight-or-flight response and eventually full shutdown. Either of these can lead to catastrophic consequences. Neuroception, the process of sensing threats and safety cues, happens outside the control of the cognitive or thinking part of your brain and precedes perception. So, you've already responded before you became aware of what set off the response. In other words, you can't outthink or out-tough this process. If your brain senses danger, you'll respond, no matter how resolute your will. This doesn't mean you're hostage to your response, but stress responses that don't match the situation are extremely costly. Stress is cumulative and progressive. Each unchecked response adds up, leading to progressively stronger responses where you have fewer resources to adjust your response skillfully. Eventually, these overwhelm your system, and your stress response collapses. At that point, you can no longer respond to challenges with the necessary resources. Even though these responses are automatic, we can reshape them. So triggers, like someone yelling at us or extreme pain or fatigue, no longer lead to stronger responses than we need to navigate the situation. We can also learn how to recognize when our stress response has been hijacked and learn to regulate our responses so we don't react in ways that hurt our performance. The autonomic nervous system, which is responsible for managing your stress response, has three branches that work together to create a variety of responses depending on the situation. Thinking of them through analogy can be helpful. In this model, the parasympathetic branch is the brake pedal, the sympathetic branch is the gas pedal, and the deep parasympathetic branch is the ejection seat. Together, these systems create four primary states of autonomic arousal. The first response is recovery mode, or parasympathetic dominance. You enter this relaxation and recovery mode when you need rest and recovery. You must feel safe to enter this state. 
It's essential for optimal recovery. The second response is the sweet spot or active engagement. This is a mix of sympathetic and parasympathetic responses. You're relaxed, open, curious, focused, and calm, able to perform cognitively, emotionally, and physically with flexibility. Depending on the situation's needs, you can have a range of responses. If you're conversing with friends, you're likely mostly parasympathetic with just enough sympathetic tone to be focused and engaged. If you're doing a five-mile run for time, you'll have more sympathetic drive and just enough parasympathetic tone to stay in the fight and change strategies as needed. The third response is fight-or-flight mode or sympathetic dominance. This is full-on fight-or-flight mode. You become cognitively rigid, energetic, physically tense, and prepared for action. When this occurs, cortisol floods the system, taking a relatively long time to clear and inhibiting the cognitive and emotional parts of our brains. Your negativity bias is turned way up, and neutral faces and cues can become threat signals. The fourth and last response is freezing or deep parasympathetic dominance. When this occurs, you shut down and collapse. You feel numb and lose the ability to think, feel, or do much. You can still function, but not well. This is the system of last resort. This is like pulling the eject handle to mentally escape the situation. Your body and mind slow down and you freeze. It's the oldest survival mechanism in the body and relies on a system different from the other parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. These responses fall on a continuum. They're not switches we flip on and off. They're more like a set of dials that we turn. However, we must move up and down this continuum linearly. A good way to think of it is as a ladder with the parasympathetic state at the bottom, the sweet spot one rung up, sympathetic dominance after that, and deep parasympathetic dominance at the top. If you start in the sweet spot and move into sympathetic dominance, you can shift back into the sweet spot or continue to the freeze response. If you're in the freeze response, you must move back into sympathetic dominance first, then to the sweet spot, and finally, parasympathetic dominance. This is why someone who has a traumatic experience and is in freeze mode can become agitated and even violent when exiting that state. The primary method of moving up and down this continuum is through parasympathetic tone, or how hard you hit the brake pedal. It's also important to note that the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems are not either-or systems. They're both constantly engaged. So the engine is always running via the sympathetic branch, and you can always hit the brake via the parasympathetic branch. If you're in a deep state of parasympathetic dominance, your foot is firmly on the brake and completely off the gas pedal. The engine is still running, but you're in full recovery mode. As you move up the continuum, your foot eases off the brake. Initially, you still have some pressure on the brake, but you have far more energy available to react to challenges through your sympathetic nervous system. This is when you're dealing with a challenging task, but still feel in control and can adapt to the situation. If you perceive that you have the resources necessary to deal with a situation, you'll see it as a challenge, something that will require focused effort, but that you can cope with and overcome. Another word for this is a eustress or positive stressor. 
You're focused, but open to new information. You're engaged, but aren't seeing threats everywhere. You're still able to communicate effectively and read social cues. This type of stress response shifts hormone production in the brain and keeps a balance between the gas and brake pedal, reducing the physiological cost of dealing with the stressor. Your hormonal output matches what is necessary to deal with the situation and no more. This is important because the faster you can return to your pre-stress baseline, the lower the physiological cost and the sooner you're ready for the next challenge. If that's not enough to manage the situation, your foot lifts off the brake and you start pushing more on the gas pedal. And if that's not enough and you're still sensing a threat, you'll press harder on the gas pedal and eventually shift into sympathetic dominance. This is a threat-based stress response where you're fully in reactionary fight-or-flight mode. The downside of this response is that it reduces cognitive processing, reducing our decision-making ability and inhibiting the social engagement system, making you less socially and emotionally intelligent. Additionally, the hormones released in this situation take a long time to clear out of the system. This excessive response often hinders performance and increases the cost and recovery time. If you have too strong of a sympathetic nervous system response through full gas pedal smashing, and your brain is still telling you that you're not safe, then your deep parasympathetic system will take over and you'll freeze. This is when you feel numb and start shutting down physically. This is your brain hitting the eject button and hoping that stopping all action, feeling, and thoughts will resolve the threat. The system is designed to help you navigate the myriad of challenges that life throws at you. For example, you want to be able to shut off and sleep deeply when you feel safe and are at rest, firmly pressing the brake, staying off the gas, and entering a strong parasympathetic state. When performing, you want to find that sweet spot, the right balance of brake and gas pedal to navigate the situation. Too little gas, and you're too sluggish and unfocused to learn or perform. Too much gas and not enough brake, and you lose control. You no longer have cognitive flexibility. You can't juggle all the pieces, and you make gross errors. If you're completely overwhelmed, you'll enter a full, deep parasympathetic shutdown and freeze. Get it just right, and you're in the zone. You're fully engaged, focused, and working right at the edge of your ability. This is commonly referred to as a flow state. You tend to lose track of time and are fully involved with the task. The sweet spot should vary from task to task. If you're in a deep conversation, the level of engagement of your sympathetic system should be less than when you're in the zone on a long and hard run. The hallmarks remain the same. You're focused, open, curious about your environment, and performing well. Triggers set off your response or can continue to amplify it, but what is happening in your mind through conscious control also contributes to your stress response, helping regulate it or amplifying an already unhelpful response. Your stress response is dependent upon your opinion of the situation. As mentioned earlier, neuroception happens outside your conscious control, but your brain doesn't just turn off. Conscious appraisal is also part of the feedback loop. You can also rebuild neuroception patterns by rebuilding your responses to stressors. In other words, your opinion of your ability to cope will impact the nature of your stress response. Two primary factors influence this, your senses of predictability and control. 
Predictability is knowing what is about to happen, what the experience will feel like physically, emotionally, and psychologically, and what you can do to deal with the situation. The more predictable something is, the less we feel stressed about it. Control is the ability to influence the outcome of a situation. It's the result of how well you can answer the what can I do about this question when appraising a challenge. When you know you can influence what happens within an experience, you also tend to feel less stressed. Whether or not you actually have control in a situation is irrelevant to your stress response. The only thing that matters is perceived control. You tend to feel less stress if you feel that you can control the outcome, even if in reality you can't. Combining these two opinions will determine if you continue to smash the gas pedal or retain some control over the brake. Your internal dialogue, managing pain and fatigue, managing expectations, and identifying and processing emotions are all part of this process. We've covered these in other podcasts and articles, so we won't rehash them here. Check out those resources for more information. The first step in managing your stress response is building a map of the extremes of each point on the continuum. This process helps you build a mental model of each state to identify what state you're in or moving toward. Stress responses are embodied, which means physical sensations accompany what's happening in your mind and bloodstream. Once you've identified where you're at on the continuum, you can use the strategies outlined later in this podcast to move up and down the continuum as needed. To help build a mental model of each state, consider an experience encapsulating the four primary stress response states outlined earlier. Ask yourself, what happened? How did you respond? And what physical sensations and thoughts occurred? Be as detailed as possible. For example, if you were doing some hard water con drills at a soft development event after a smoke session, and each time you screwed up or grabbed the side of the pool, the cadre yelled at you and punished the group. Time after time, the cadre gave you a chance to just do the thing correctly so that they could stop punishing everyone else. But no matter how hard you tried, you couldn't stop freaking out. Your heart felt like it was jumping out of your chest and you couldn't catch your breath. Your mind darted from place to place and it was hard to think. This is an example of sympathetic dominance. Your brain turned off and you just kept doing the same thing harder despite its lack of effectiveness. Once you have an accurate model of what each response feels like, you can start to apply this to your daily life. As you go through your day, identify when you move into different states. The best time to do this is the more challenging moments of your day. Pay special attention to transitional states, the gray areas where you're not quite in sympathetic dominance but not in the sweet spot, or when you're not quite able to fully relax and fall asleep but you're not engaged enough to solve problems. Identifying these moments is easy in retrospect and difficult in the moment, but these are the moments where you can easily tip in the wrong direction and where implementing a strategy to reduce your stress response can bring you into the right state for that moment. Another area to hone in on is situations you know are challenging specifically for you. Maybe it's group communication or receiving difficult feedback from a superior. Whatever it is, be particularly alert to triggers in these situations. If you're uncomfortable, you'll be particularly sensitive to perceived threats. 
So it's important to identify them and work to create strategies to stay in the sweet spot during these situations. Exercise is another area to pay special attention to. Intense physical hardship adds layers of complexity to identifying our stress responses. Physical stress during exercise is still stress, and there is a mental and emotional component as well. Sensations of pain and fatigue can amplify our stress when we don't manage them effectively. As physical stress accumulates, it can become harder to identify and regulate our responses to stay in the sweet spot. We have less attentional bandwidth to regulate because much of it is devoted to getting through the experience. Now that you have a map of different responses, you need to learn what triggers your stress response and what resources you can use to regulate it. As cliche as the word trigger has become, they are a real thing and are the best way to describe what initiates a stress response. The tone of someone's voice, body language that doesn't seem right, or catching something out of the corner of your eye can trigger a stress response. This isn't a bad thing. We need lightning quick responses to events to stay alive and perform well. While some triggers are automatic, most are learned, which means we can alter them. We might have a sympathetically dominant response to negative feedback or raised voice because that was adaptive at some point in our lives. But if you're going to a soft selection, probably want to unlearn or modify your response or you're going to be more stressed than necessary all the time. To do so, we need awareness. Start taking inventory of your triggers. As you go throughout your day, identify when you feel yourself react to a stimulus with a strong sympathetic response. You may not immediately notice this happening. This is why you must reflect on your day periodically and when you shifted states. Ask yourself, what was the situation, and what immediately preceded your response. Identifying resources is the second step. Resources are the inverse of triggers. They're leverage points we can use to calm our nervous system when we notice our response doesn't match what is required. As we already discussed, focusing on what you can predict and control in any situation is an effective way to do this. Other powerful cues you can always control are your breath, attention to physical sensations, and your gaze or your eye direction. Slowing down your breathing, think full exhale, slight pause, natural inhale, letting the air fall into your lungs while focusing on the physical sensations of this process will pull you back into your body into sense of safety. This helps turn up the parasympathetic dial via the vagal break. Feeling the weight of your feet on the ground, or simply sensing your body's sensations and letting go of tension can also be helpful. Walking in nature, or tuning into your surroundings by looking into the distance, is also often beneficial. Other helpful things people commonly use are mantras and positive, or at least neutral, self-talk that reinforces a process and growth-oriented approach to solving the problem in front of you. Visualizing someone you love or a positive event has the same effect. Make a list of the resources that help you calm and regulate yourself when you feel stressed. Once you know how each stress response feels and you have a variety of resources available to manage and adjust responses, it's time to employ these in your daily training to build more robust stress responses. We call this process stress inoculation training, or SIT. The goal is to expand your range of experiences that you can tolerate 
while staying in the sweet spot. SIT is broken into three stages. Each stage follows the other at a specific level of stress. Once you've completed the last stage, you assess, adjust, and repeat until you can complete the task under the desired stress levels. Stage one is called conceptual education. During this phase, the goal is to learn about the task at hand, the standard you're shooting for, and what to expect physically and psychologically. This is where the mental model is developed. The goal is to learn the basic skills and concepts necessary to succeed under higher stress levels than you're used to. This is what you've been doing while listening to this podcast. You've been building a mental model of your stress response and how to manage it. Stage two is called skill acquisition and consolidation. This is where most of your practice occurs and knowledge is converted into behavior. During this phase, the goal is to learn the skills until they become your default automatic response. This includes physical and psychological strategies to manage performance. You'll develop a deep level of quality in executing every task by repetition until you have achieved a high level of competency with every aspect of the skill. This is where you want to dial in the sweet spot for your stress response for the specific task. Continue to monitor for triggers and use resources to push yourself up and down the stress ladder. Stage three is called application and follow through. During the last phase, you focus on executing the task under progressively higher levels of stress. This is the test and assess phase. Sometimes the driver of stress will be increasing the complexity of the environment that you're performing in. You could also increase the intensity or the speed of execution of the task. Or you can add cumulative stress, like performing the task after accumulating fatigue or several other stressful events. When using stress inoculation training, it's important to keep the following principles in mind. First, specificity matters because all skills are context-specific. The more specific you can be with the types and magnitude of stressors, the better. Second, stress is cumulative and progressive. Without proper recovery, stress will accumulate from day to day. When deciding how much stress you can handle, you must consider your current capacity for rest and recovery. Third, you must manage anxiety. Anxiety is helpful as long as you can recover after a task is over. The goal is to use mental models to help prepare and guide you through a training session and reduce your stress response after. This also underscores our next point, which is the importance of designing your practice environment so that you're working right at the edge of your ability and struggling your way to success while making and learning from small errors. If you overwhelm yourself and apply too much stress too fast, you won't improve and you'll begin to associate the work you're doing with an anxiety response. So, the fourth principle is to maintain quality and outcomes. Consistency in practice breeds consistency in real-world environments. Your goal is to maintain quality within standards and to be generally successful. You want earned success, not easy success. Stress inoculation training only works when you can first successfully accomplish a task in a non-stressed environment. Then, as you add stress, you want to maintain mostly positive outcomes. Positive doesn't mean perfect, it just means the errors are small enough to be corrected from session to session 
and don't result in catastrophic failure. Mistakes or failures are opportunities to learn, but the only way we learn how to do something properly is by succeeding at it. This is why it's important to maintain earned success most of the time. The goal is to stay right at the edge of your ability, not to blow past it and fail. Humans are meant to work in cycles at different timescales, balancing stress and recovery. The more dialed in your cycles, the better you learn and adapt. And when it's time, perform. This doesn't mean there isn't room for variability. Resilient people's cycles can adapt to bigger disruptions or deviations during stressful periods. For example, more resilient people can handle longer and harder days during the week because their sleep is deeper and more restorative. They can handle larger training volumes and you have to perform weeks and adapt faster when given a chance to recover. And they can recover faster and more often in selection because in every spare moment, they can switch off their stress response and rest and recover. The most resilient and capable people are good at balancing stress and recovery over different timescales. They can turn it on and off quickly, which enables them to avoid living in the gray zone, where they never really recover or truly push themselves to their limits. They do this by matching their stress response to the situation. Downtime equates to a full parasympathetic state, and performance is mainly in the sweet spot. When they over or underreact to stressors, they identify and adjust. To help make this process clear, let's put together everything we've discussed so far with an example. Let's say you're training for a maritime soft pipeline, like BUDS, SWIC, Marine Recon, etc. First, you document what physical, mental, and emotional responses accompany the four primary stress responses for you. You then take stock of what triggers your stress responses and what resources you can have that help you calm down. This is stage one of the stress inoculation process, called conceptual education. You're building a mental model of what matters. The next stage, skill acquisition and consolidation, occurs during your initial training phases. Your focus is on regulating and matching your stress response to the situation. You don't take pre-workout and go ape shit at the gym, you only work as hard as necessary to perform well. Between sets, you practice breathing and movement drills to rapidly calm down. During swims and runs, you work to find the mental strategies to offset pain and fatigue and stay efficient and in control of your breathing. In your downtime, you practice processing your experiences, adjusting strategies, and falling asleep as quickly as possible. As you continue your prep, you layer other mental skills into your training, emotional regulation, self-talk, and pain and fatigue management. You then start working on water confidence drills, on land through CO2 tolerance apps, and then through guided sessions at places like Deep End Fitness. Toward the end of prep, you start phase three of the stress inoculation process called application and follow through. To do this, you add open-ended workouts where you can't predict or control how long your events will last. Sometimes these are upward of six hours and mimic many selection components. You also attend development weekends that mimic aspects of selection, the cadre yelling at you, social pressure, pass-fail moments, team events, and impossible tasks designed to make you fail. You implement all of your mental skills strategies and pay special attentions to moments when you notice yourself over or under-reacting. 
You take what you learned from the prep events and target those specific triggers until they're no longer weaknesses before enlisting and heading off to selection. Like any challenging path, you haven't accounted for everything because it's impossible, but you've learned how to manage and adapt your stress responses as you encounter novelty. In addition, you've built a repertoire of resources to manage yourself and all the other components of your mind that you'll need to pass selection. Unsurprisingly, managing our stress response also makes us more emotionally intelligent. Sensations of pain, stress, and emotion can be hard to distinguish because they are all embodied experiences, meaning that they have physical and cognitive signatures. So, the more skilled you become at identifying and managing your stress response, the more capable you'll be at identifying and managing emotions. The type of stress response you're experiencing changes your capacity for emotional regulation. As you move into a strong, sympathetic response, anything stronger than what is needed, your social engagement system goes offline. This means that you're no longer curious and open to new ideas. You'll tend to see and feel threats quickly. You won't want to work with others and will quickly jump to comparison and judgment. It doesn't mean that you're going to throw a punch or yell at someone, but you'll probably just be a pain to work with. If you notice that you don't want to listen, think everyone else is dumb, or are losing your patience, your social engagement system is going offline. This might be completely warranted and natural if someone's yelling at you. However, if they're your superior officer, you can't really do anything about it. Or if they're your peers, meaning force with force rarely works. This does not mean you should allow people to mistreat you. But if you can be the calm person and redirect the conversation in a helpful manner, you'll help regulate them and the whole team will win. The key to doing this is identifying and regulating your stress response. When you do this, you retain the capacity to sense and regulate your emotions. This is crucial because emotions can amplify a stress response or take you hostage when you ignore them for too long. When you're stressed, it's for a good reason from your brain's perspective. It's trying to protect you from a challenge or a threat, and that can often trigger emotional responses, things like anger, fear, or sadness. Sometimes you need to compartmentalize and consciously set aside an emotional response to manage the task in front of you. But when you ignore emotions and stuff them down with your smasher downer, they don't go away. They come back stronger than ever later. And you overreact at the slightest provocation. This is why you need to replay, identify, and let yourself experience intense emotions that you had to repress or set aside to overcome a challenge. You must revisit and process your hardest moments. You can't just tuck them away in the recesses of your mind and act like it didn't happen. Shine a light in the corners and see what's there. If you can't or don't know how to navigate this independently, ask for help. We can only be the people that we want for others when we care for our own needs first. It's normal to move up and down the continuum of regulation during challenging events. No one is in the sweet spot all the time. You'll only get yourself into trouble when you stop identifying and regulating your stress response. This is when your emotional intelligence will tank. 
and you'll become an ongoing liability to your team and peers. Everyone has bad moments, but the more you practice staying in the fight and managing yourself, the easier it will be to recognize when you shift it out of the ideal stress response. Losing motivation often happens from living too much in sympathetic or deep parasympathetic dominance. Stress is progressive and cumulative. Again, each stress response adds up like a thousand little cuts. Eventually, hormonally, emotionally, and cognitively, you reach a state of overwhelm, and your capacity to continue regulating yourself becomes severely impaired. Soft selection, or any challenging path, will have novel stressors you can't account for. When these occur, you'll have stress responses that don't match what's needed. You'll over- or underreact to the situation. Your ability to identify and pull yourself out of those responses and closer to the sweet spot will restore the mindsets you need to sustain motivation. Paradoxically, the key to continuing to do this is to accept that you'll lose your motivation or, at the least, have mixed feelings. Giving up, numbing, or running away when we don't feel motivated are learned responses we can change. Action creates motivation, not vice versa. So the ability to just not quit is developed through small daily choices, or learning how to navigate hardwired responses that we can't stop from occurring, especially when it's the last thing we want to do. We will always want to avoid difficulty, be far more sensitive to the negative than the positive, feel pain and fatigue more strongly than the danger to ourselves warrants, want and need validation and support, and many other tendencies often thought of as weaknesses. But our minds have many automatic responses that evolved because of their utility in situations that rarely apply to modern humans. We might not like them, but we must learn to live with them. It's helpful to understand the natural blind spots or patterns of our minds and to manage them with compassion. This does not mean letting ourselves off the hook. Instead, we can accept and work to address them without beating ourselves up. The root of self-compassion is holding yourself accountable. Imagine what you'd want to tell your best friend if they were in your shoes. Then follow your own advice. The central tenet of the process outlined in this podcast is staying in the moment and coping. As we like to say, fight this fight. Stay present and make the most of each moment. Don't hide or run away. The hardest moments will be when we feel like we're struggling more than everyone else, that we don't belong, and that we are a liability. Don't believe yourself when you have these thoughts. You aren't alone, even when you feel like it. We tend to feel alone in our suffering because our innate response is to underestimate how much others struggle with negative emotions while overestimating how positive their experience is. We feel like the only one struggling to keep up on a group run. Or we feel like we're letting our team down when we struggle to carry our portion of the load. In a soft selection environment, cadre exploit this illusion to see if you have the mental skills to keep going when you feel like the whole world is against you. If they see you struggling, they pounce. They will let you know that you're holding your team up and everyone else is suffering because of your weakness. Or they might just politely let you know that you shouldn't be struggling. Ignore these manipulations. Keep doing your best and they'll leave you alone. You can't out-fitness or out-tough the most challenging moments in life. 
whether a soft selection or difficult conversation. You must accept your situation, stay in the moment, and work to manage yourself compassionately. If you're not able to identify, normalize, and regulate yourself in these situations, you'll numb yourself or run away. Remind yourself that no matter how bad you feel, everyone around you who is or has been in a similar situation probably feels the same, if not worse. And that response is natural and normal. It's supposed to be hard and not the fun kind of hard. Remember, fight this fight. Managing your stress response is the first factor in staying in the game in challenging situations. If you don't attune to your stress response, all the motivation, mental toughness, and growth mindset in the world won't carry you through. The skills you'll build learning to manage your stress response are the building blocks for cognitive skills like segmenting, self-talk, and compartmentalization, and emotional intelligence skills like naming and shaping emotions and attuning to others. That's it for today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or feedback.